We'll continue our readings from Mark, chapter 6, the first 30 verses, and I invite you to read in your Bibles or read along on the screen. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph, and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on uh, two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bowed him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came for Herod on his birthday, when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and, said, and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths, and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. 
The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So good morning, everyone. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Tom Rizzo. I'm one of the elders here at, at Westlake Church. Um, and before we look at God's word together, let's just open uh, in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for what it says to us, for the way it speaks into our hearts. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work and apply it to each heart here this morning. Lord, that your work would be done in us and your name glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So before um, I start this morning, I'd like to ask you a question. And that is, how decisive are you? Are you someone who makes decisions easily and never looks back? Or are you someone who makes a decision and then second guesses yourself, always wondering whether it was the right one? Perhaps you're someone who sits on the fence, having difficulty making any decisions at all. You want to have it both ways and you never really decide. Now, now for me, it depends upon the nature of, of the decision. Uh, if it's about spending money on myself, I can be very indecisive, it turns out. Interest, interestingly, I, I find that I spend much mon more money on myself when my wife, Karen, is with me. Um, <laughs> you can interpret that however you like. Um, in other instances, it's quite different. Uh, when I first met Karen, it was in graduate school at the University of Wisconsin in the context of a graduate Christian fellowship. We met during my second year um, and began dating uh, in September. We got engaged the following January and then married in June, nine months after we met. Um, I first met Karen's parents in person two days before the wedding. <laughs> Um, so no one would accuse me of, being, uh, of, of sitting on the fence in that particular decision. And uh, 42 years later, uh, I think it's clear that it was the right decision. <laughs> now, you may be thinking, what on earth does this have to do with Mark chapter 6? To understand the connection, we, we need to remind ourselves of the storyline of the book of Mark thus far. Uh, which is, is easy to lose sight of as we only treat small chunks each week, each Sunday morning. Mark was a close, uh, a close partner of the Apostle Peter. He collected eyewitness accounts and memories of Peter, and he structured his gospel in a very deliberate way. In the first verse of the book, Mark tells us who Jesus is. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ Christ meaning the Messiah, the Son of God. And then a few verses later, Jesus' summary of his message. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The question of Jesus' identity is the major theme in the first half of the book of Mark. And Mark progressively reveals this to his readers by giving examples of how people responded to him, whether, what they decided about who he is and whether or not to follow him. Mark starts by describing Jesus' teaching in the synagogues. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. 
He went all throughout Galilee preaching his message that the kingdom of God was at hand, casting out demons, healing, and calling people to repent. The most common response was one of amazement, and many ended up following him. But some reacted differently. Starting in chapter 2, Mark describes a series of five encounters between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees in which they become increasingly opposed to him. You may remember the incident where a paralytic was lowered through a hole in the roof to reach Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who could forgive sins but God alone? And after some exchange with them, Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. The scribes were questioning Jesus' authority, since only God can forgive sins. But by calling himself the Son of Man, Jesus is revealing something more about who he was, in terms that the Pharisees and scribes would understand. He was alluding to the prophet Daniel, uh, who prophesied of God's all-powerful and everlasting king. In the subsequent encounters with the Pharisees, they reacted to Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors. They questioned why his disciples didn't fast like John the Baptist's disciples, why they picked grain to eat on the Sabbath. And finally, in the culmination of this series of five encounters, they lay in wait for him in the synagogue where there was a man with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. The Pharisees and the scribes were not sitting on the fence regarding whether or not to follow Jesus. They had made their decision. Now, what was Jesus' response to this? First, he continues to preach and heal, although now he, he mostly does it outside the synagogue. And then he appoints the 12 apostles. There was significance to the number 12, as Martin point out, pointed out a few weeks ago when, when he preached. Um, it was the same number of the tribes as the number of tribes of Israel. And the message that Jesus was sending is, was, those who decide to reject him will be replaced. Now, somewhat surprisingly, this theme carries over even to Jesus' immediate family. He went home to Nazareth, and there were such crowds gathering around him that they couldn't even eat. And then Mark recounts in, in, uh, in chapter 3, verse 21, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. 
Later then, his family came back looking for him. They were waiting beside a crowd to, which, to whom he was speaking. And when told that they were waiting for him, Jesus replies, who are my mothers and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus was sending a clear message. Those who decide to reject him will be replaced. Now the type of mixed reaction, uh, reaction or reception that Jesus received was not what the Jews would have anticipated for the Messiah, the son of, of man of Daniel uh, chapter seven. And also the kingdom of God that Jesus was preaching was not what they were expecting. The kingdom was supposed to come with power, liberating them from their Roman oppressors. Now, as a reader, if you didn't already know the end of the story, you might be wondering at this point if Jesus really is who he says he is, given the mixed reaction to him. However, in a series of parables in chapter four that Reese preached on a few weeks ago, Jesus explains. He tells the parable of the sower. He says, the coming of the kingdom is like sowing seed, which is scattered on the ground. It, it doesn't come in power. It doesn't force itself upon people. How it is received, how people respond to him, depends upon the type of soil. And what was not anticipated was that the kingdom would come and that people could actually reject it, that there could even be different responses to the kingdom. Some seeds fall on the path and birds snatch it away. Some on rocky ground where it sprouts up quickly, but there's no root. And when the sun comes out, it withers away. Some falls among the thorns which grow and choke it out. And finally, some falls on good soil where it grows and bears fruit. Mark then goes on to give examples, contrasting examples of how these different types of soil, um, of these different types of soil. In chapter five, Jesus encounters the man with the legion of unclean spirits. You might remember how Jesus cast these evil spirits into a herd of pigs who rushed down uh, the hillside into, a, uh, into, into the sea. And Mark gives contrasting, contrasts the reactions to Jesus' miracles. The townspeople are afraid and they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. While the man from whom the demons had been cast out begged him that he might be with him. Same event, different soils, different people decide to respond to him differently. Then in the passage Martin preached on uh, before Easter, Mark gives two examples of good soil. The case of Jairus, <clears throat> the synagogue ruler whose little daughter was dying. Despite the pressure that must have been put on him from the other, um, fr from the Jewish leaders, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And the woman who was bleeding for 12 years who came up behind him in a crowd, believing if I touch his, even his garments, I will be made well. Mark is showing us individuals who decided to believe in Jesus and respond to him in faith. And in each of these instances, Mark reveals 
more and more about who Jesus is and what kind of response that he wants. Now, <clears throat> this was a rather long-winded introduction uh, that forms the, the backdrop of the passage that we'll look at today in, in Mark chapter six, as Jesus returns to his hometown of Nazareth. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to open it up to Mark chapter six and follow along. Now, up to this point, Jesus' center of operations had largely been in Capernaum, which is on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. Nazareth was about a 40 kilometer, uh, was about 40 kilometers from Capernaum, a, a very long day's walk. And the last time he was there, the reception was not particularly welcoming. As you may remember, his family accused him of being out of his mind. Perhaps the purpose of the second visit was to renew the relationship with his family and give the people of Nazareth a second chance. His disciples came with him, although they don't seem to play a particular uh, uh, role in this part of the story. Per perhaps it was part of their training to experience the rejection as Jesus preached his message of repentance uh, and faith. As was Jesus' custom, he went to the synagogue to teach. This was likely the synagogue that he went to as he was growing up. And as he spoke, many who heard him were astonished. Now being astonished isn't, itself, isn't in itself good or bad. Right? It's, how they respond to, it's how they respond to the astonishment, which is important. They immediately begin to raise a number of questions, mostly centered on, on who he is. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? They seemed to be impressed by his teaching and his wisdom, and they heard of the miracles that he had, has performed throughout Galilee. Their difficulty was in reconciling all this with the person they thought that they knew. Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary and brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. These are typical reactions that people might have to a hometown boy. How could someone who has grown up among them do and, and teach such things? However, there seems to be a, a sense of derision in their comments. Is this not the carpenter? He was a blue collar worker, someone who worked with his hands. How are such mighty works done by his hands? They referred to him as the son of Mary. Normally, one would refer to someone by their father's name, not their mother's name. Now, this may be because Joseph had already died at that point, but it could also have been a veiled reference to the rumor that Jesus was an illegitimate child. The result was that they took offense at him. They listened, but they did not hear, like those for whom the seed fell on the side of the road. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Mark goes on to say in verse five that Jesus could do no mighty work there. Now, certainly we know that he could have, however, 
he doesn't force himself on those who don't believe. He's like a sower. The seed is sown and the different soils will receive it differently. Now, it's interesting to note that this is the last record of Mar in Mark's gospel of Jesus teaching in a synagogue. The synagogue has now become a place of rejection. And what is it that led to their scornful disbelief or the scornful unbelief of, of Jesus? It could have been that he was a different kind of king, not the triumphant Messiah that they were looking for. He wasn't a part of the religious elite. He was just a carpenter. And they thought that they knew him. Now, perhaps there's a message here for those of you who have grown up your whole lives in the church. Familiarity can sometimes be blinding. Perhaps accounts of his miracles no longer astonish you. His death on the cross no longer moves you. Familiarity can sometimes blind us to the greatness and the glory of the Savior. We also have to be aware of this for our children who grew up in the church, that the wonder of the gospel doesn't become too familiar. Whatever the reason, the people of Nazareth decide to reject Jesus. Now, as we move on to the second part of today's passage, the scene changes. In verses 7 through 13, Mark describes Jesus sending out the apostles. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now, they had been with him in Nazareth to, to witness his rejection there, and now he's sending them out on their own. One might consider this a training mission, an exercise in faith as they were to take minimal provisions with them. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. What they needed would be provided by the people who received them. The message that they were to proclaim was the same that Jesus proclaimed in chapter one. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now, notice that this account is interrupted in verse 14, but then it's finished in verse, 30, in verse 30 when the apostles return. What's interjected between verses 13 and 30 is Mark's account of the beheading of John the Baptist by King Herod. There's a sort of a sandwich structure here where the sending and returning of the, uh, of the apostles is sort of like the bread of the sandwich and the incident with Herod and John the Baptist is, is the filling. Why, why does Mark use this particular structure? Why doesn't he finish one story before he goes on to the next? I think it's Mark's way of signaling that there's some connection between these stories. And he's, and, and so let, let's look at first the filling of the sandwich, and then we'll come back <clears throat> and look to the bread and see why Mark has structured the, um, this section in, in the way that he has. Excuse me. <clears throat> so in verses <clears throat> 14 and 16, um, they're still part of a live narrative. 
It starts with speculation about <clears throat> who Jesus is. <clears throat> King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work at him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Herod had heard of Jesus, likely because of his miracles or those done by his disciples in his name. Speculation was circulating as to who this Jesus was and where these powers came from. Some around him suggested it was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some said that he was Elijah and others a prophet. But when Herod heard these suggestions, he latches on to the explanation that it was John the Baptist whom, whom he had beheaded, but now somehow raised from the dead and imbued with some special powers. And this probably came from his guilty conscience. Now, at this point, starting in verse 17, Mark provides a flashback in which he narrates for us the story of how the John the Baptist was beheaded. And he explains why Herod might be uh, fixated on it. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his, bro his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Herod had married his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, and because of her, Herod had John arrested and put him in prison, uh, probably in part to appease her, but also to protect John. Now, what did Herodias have against John the Baptist? Well, Mark writes in verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. John the Baptist was calling out Herod on his adulterous relationship with his brother's wife, and she wanted him killed so she didn't have to hear it. John was telling Herod to repent. Now, if we go back and think about the sandwich structure for a moment, a theme that connect, one of the themes that connects this story with the sending of the disciples is the theme of repentance. This was the same message that the apostles were preaching. Now, why could Herodias not have killed John, have, have had John the Baptist killed? For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Herod was doing two things at the same time. He was listening to John and appeasing his illegal lover and committing adultery. John the Baptist had called Herod to repent, but he was sitting on the fence. He likes John too much. He probably recognized a, the ring of truth in John's words and, and feared him. He refuses to give in to Herodias' wishes to have him killed. But he also refuses to follow John's exhortation to repent. He likes Herodias too much. He wants to have both. John, uh, Herod is, is sitting on the fence. Now, as the story unfolds, it's, uh, it's Herod's fence-sitting that leads to moral disaster. So just to briefly recount the story, Herodias couldn't put John to death until the mo right moment arose. 
Herod gave a birthday party banquet for his nobles, commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. Herodias' daughter came in and danced, and this pleased Herod and his guests. And the king, at this point, probably drunk, uh, told her in front of all his guests to ask for whatever she wanted, up to half of his kingdom. The dutiful daughter goes back to her mother, Herodias, and asks what, what she should request from Herod, to which her mother replies, the head of John the Baptist. At that point, Herod was caught in a difficult situation. He had made his promise in front of, he made this promise in front of all his distinguished guests, and to renege on that promise would be a great embarrassment. But he was exceedingly sorry because he feared John and he liked listening to him. And in the end, he cared more about how he appeared to his guests than he did for John's life. And the result, Mark tells us in verses 27 and 28, and immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. Herodias's opportunity to do this arises because of Herod's failure to repent. If he had ended this adulterous relationship, the situation would have never happened. It was his sitting on the fence, wanting both to hear John, but pursue his adulterous relationship with Herodias, which led to this disaster. Now, in light of this, let, let's go back to Jesus' sending of the disciples. What does the bread of the sandwich, if you will, have to say about, about fence sitting? The villagers to whom the disciples had been sent they had two options. Either they could welcome the repentance-preaching apostles for the duration of their visit, or they could refuse to listen and have the dust shaken off the disciples' feet at them in protest, this being a statement of judgment of those who had rejected Jesus' message. If you think about it, the fact that the apostles packed no provisions for their trip forced the issue. If the message wasn't received to the point of them being offered meals and a place to sleep, then the apostles had no choice but to leave and shake the dust off their feet. They did not give the villagers the opportunity to sit on the fence. This passage is about making a decision to respond to Jesus' call to repent and believe. Now, in considering what the take-home message is from this passage, we have to determine how we read ourselves into the story. We have to determine who, who are we in this story? Who am I? And on the surface, we might be tempted to identify ourselves with the apostles and John the Baptist. And in that case, the message would be, as we preach the gospel, we shouldn't be surprised when we meet opposition, even hardship. However, I think Mark wants us to identify with the villagers and Herod. And the message is, stop sitting on the fence. Repent and believe. Now, some of you are here this morning, and you might not, be might not yet be Christians. Maybe you are relatively new to church and the message of the Bible, and you're not entirely sure what you think about it all. Perhaps you come along with your spouse, or you invited, were invited by a friend. 
You like listening to the sermons and enjoy interacting with people, but you're worried about what people will think if you identify yourself as a Christian. Maybe you have an area of your life that you know would have to, you would have to let go of if you were to become a Christian, and hence you're sitting on the fence. The message here to you this morning is stop sitting on the fence and decide if Jesus is who he says he is. As we go through the Gospel of Mark week by week, commit yourself to examining the evidence for who Jesus is and decide whether or not to follow him. For those of us who are already Christians, perhaps there's an area of your life that you know is wrong, that you don't want to let go of. Just, just a small compromise, a small seed of unrepentance. At that point, we become potential Herods. Herod didn't originally plan to serve up John's head on a platter, but the small seed of unrepentance grew into something that he could not control. In Herod's case, it was a sinful relationship with Herodias. It's not uncommon that sinful relationships leave people eventually turning their backs on Jesus. The message to you is stop sitting on the fence. If we really believe who Jesus is and what he says, and that our ultimate well-being is tied up with him, then our refusal to give up a sinful habit or a relationship is, is a lack of faith. We just don't believe him. And in the case of Herod, this led to a catastrophic failure. And it can for us as well. Now, in closing this morning, I want to go back and consider the reaction of Jesus' family. Recall in, in chapter 3, his family members accuse him of being crazy. And Jesus' response was, For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus was pretty clear. Those who decide to reject him will be replaced. But this doesn't mean that those who fall on the wrong side of the fence are lost beyond hope. And I want to focus on one particular individual, his brother James, who is mentioned, who is mentioned by name in Mark um, chapter 6, verse 3. We don't hear from him in, uh, in the story, but he, he certainly uh, witnessed Jesus' rejection in Nazareth. Nazareth. Now, I don't know if his brother James saw Jesus hanging on the cross when he gave his last, last breath and uttered the words, it is finished. The Bible doesn't tell us that. One thing the Bible does tell us, though, is that Jesus appeared to James after his resurrection. One could only imagine what that encounter must have been like, given what had transpired. But one thing is clear that encounter changed his life. James, <clears throat> James became a pillar of the church in Jerusalem, equivalent in stature to Paul and the other apostles. He's the author of, <clears throat> of one of the letters in the New Testament that bears his name, where he describes himself, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He also wrote, count it all, my, all joy, my brothers, when you, meet this, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith 
produces steadfastness. James was martyred in AD 62, killed on account of his faith. When Jesus said, it is finished, he indicated that the price was paid to redeem even those who had failed him badly. All one needs to do is to get off the fence, believe who he is, and to trust him. Let's pray.